I'm not sure yet. We'll figure that part out. Um, but we do have today a wonderful guest in uh, Seema Anand. Um, she is a writer, a speaker, um, a YouTube phenomenon from what I from what I gather also from all her lectures and talks she gives in, in regards to femininity, tantra, sexuality, Indian uh, history, Indian um, views on sexuality, and also fem uh, feminist dialogue in the modern world. Um, so uh, Seema Anand, please uh, join us today. And thank you so much for joining us, actually. And we're also joined by a co-host today, Shahada Hassan. Shahada, welcome. Uh, uh, Seema Anand, welcome. How are you both doing? Thank you. I, I, I'm always fascinated when I hear introductions about me because I'm like, oh, is that me? You know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So Shahada, uh, you know, I, I saw a couple of your videos, uh, you know, a few months ago, but Shahada has been like talking up a storm about you. So so Shahada, like you, you go ahead and, and tell us how you got introduced to uh, 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 Simaji. Well, I suppose we have friends in we have a similar circle of friends, don't we? So we got introduced and I've always been a fan and I thought it's destiny and we connected straight away. So I thought your voice needs to be heard. So um, yeah, I'm just really honored to have you here. And I just think you have such a beautiful vibe about you. And I think this is really important about podcasts that you know your identity and your inner self is projected as well. So I just thought I'd start off because we have a little discussion before about Seema. Do you want to just start us off about where your journey started and, and are you where you wanted to be? Did you visualize yourself to be in this place right now? Hi, uh, Shahada, you know, that's a really, um... Okay, so that's one of those uh, questions that always gets me thinking and wondering. I, I think it's, uh, so, okay, so I have to tell you that I guess it's a little bit of a weird journey. I'm very, very fortunate. I come from a very long line of women who have been educated working women. So I'm going back to my great grandmother who was highly educated and she, had, she was a professional and um, she actually was an inspector of schools back in the time of the Raj, and she was a social activist. And she actually died leading a demonstration protesting domestic violence. Um, and um, my, she had four daughters, which is my nanny, my grandmother and her three sisters. And so she had made sure that all of them were professionals as well. So my nanny and one of her sisters were medics and the other two were academics. So, you know, again, like I said, it wasn't just sort of, a, and they were working women and they're really, really sort of independent women. 
And then I have my mom and again, you know, working independent woman and somebody who kind of, um, I mean, all the women in the family have just been amazing because like, I was going to say that, you know, mommy actually got divorced when she was pregnant with me. And, you know, and because my, my biological father, who I've never met, raised his hands on her. And my grandparents said, you're not putting up with this nonsense, come right back home. And then she met my very first stepfather. So I have a couple of stepfathers who were wonderful. And my first stepfather and she lived together and I'm now 58. So they met when I was a year old in Delhi. They lived together, they didn't get married. You know, And I'm giving you this background for a reason. And that is that, you know, so I came from a family which believed that women had a voice and a right and there was no kind of oh my god you're a woman you belong in this little place over here and so I always knew that I would be okay when I was in the house but the moment I stepped out of the house I went into the world you suddenly realize oh damn it the world doesn't think like that about women so you have to carve a place out for yourself now um the problem with being a woman from this kind of background is that when I was growing up, you know, if you were an educated woman in colonial India, you basically did not delve into the old literatures of India because colonial India was all about uh, being a professional, uh, studying in English. Do you know what I mean? Like it was very much about learning all the European literatures and so on. So I grew up with absolutely no knowledge of Hindu mythology and texts. And I went to university, studied literature because I'm fascinated by mythology. But at my university, they did not teach, this was in Delhi, I did English honors, I did literature. They didn't teach a single Indian text. So I can recite Homer backwards. I can tell you all about Shakespeare. I can recite Keats still to you, but I didn't know a single thing about our ancient um, Indian texts. and. I guess somewhere inside me, I was obviously drawn to them because when I moved to live in this country after I got married, I actually met a couple of academics who worked in the field of Indian literature, ancient Indian literature. And that's how I moved to it. So this is, um, I got married in December 85. So my journey with the Indian literature started a lot later. And my journey with the um, texts around sexuality, with all the Kamshastras, that actually began even more recently because I, as I said, I work with mythologies and I believe that the stories that you tell define your identity. So in a culture, the stories that you tell around what a woman is supposed to be, you know, you tell stories and in our ancient literature, there are a lot of stories about how the man comes home and he beats up his wife because he's so drunk, but she's such a good woman. She never says anything. She's so good. She, she maintains the dignity of the family. So you've kind of identified what a good woman is supposed to be in inverted commas. And anybody who stands up for herself is not a good woman. And so I was really fascinated. And I do believe that the only way that we're going to change any of these, um, these identities is by changing the stories. So I'm fascinated by the stories. And I realized over time that we never ever told stories of a woman's right to her own body, to her own sexuality. And so I went off looking for those stories, trying to figure out what we'd silenced. And I came upon, I happened upon the Kamshastras. And it was supposed to be a, a, a paper. I was going to do like a 10,000 word paper. 
And you know what, 10 years later, I'm still stuck because I haven't been able to get enough of it. They are, this is the most fascinating set of texts that exist in the world, I think. And they're so deep and they have, people say to me constantly, can you tell, you know, when I talk about them and people get really excited and then they'll say, can you tell us about a good translation? But the problem is it's not about translating. It's not about linguistics, you know, just like, the Bhagavad Gita is, it's, it's a treatise or the Arthashastras is a treatise. It's written in metaphor, it's written in really complex grammar. We were talking a minute ago, Mukund, about the, um, the tantras. They're written in metaphor. They're not that simple. It's not that you just put it from Sanskrit into English and hey presto, you understand yeah. it. And the Kama Sutra is exactly the same thing. It's written in metaphor. It has the most incredible amount of knowledge and the beauty and the excitement and the gorgeousness to it. But it's all lost and hidden because we don't know what they're talking about. It's quite interesting. You're talking about the, um, the beauty of the metaphors. Was there issues of accessibility during the old times? So I think that, yeah, sorry, carry on. In the sense that you know a lot of like I'm Muslim that you know you know there's a lot of simplification for accessibility. So where do you get your text from as well? Oh, okay, so mine are literally um, the the painful process of digging one layer at a time. It's not easy. Um, so I think in the time that the Kama Sutra was written, which is 300 something AD, um, people understood what they were talking about. Okay, two things. One is that writing back then was very much for the elite and also for the elite men. Women were not taught how to read or write at this point. And the average person was not taught how to read or write. So this is very much for the men of high society. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so the people who were reading this, it was the courtly society, it was the wealthy, they understood what they were talking about over time. I think a lot of those metaphors got lost. And just to give you a little tiny example of this, I think that the day I decided that I was going to write the book, because for a long time I was like, no, I'm quite happy to just do this as a spoken word, was when I discovered um, that apparently in the Kamshastras, in the Kam Sutra, or in the time of the Kam Sutra, they believed that you, a woman certainly, learned how to perform. Uh, certain sexual positions by understanding the movement of the jewelry that she was wearing. So in ancient, in the ancient world, at no point in the ancient world was a woman ever allowed to be on top during lovemaking. That's seen as a position of power and that was not for the woman. The Kama Sutra, however, has several positions that it talks about. People always think, oh, I have to say this, I have to qualify it. It's not a book about positions and it's not a book about sex, but there is some little chapter about positions. But the Kama Sutra says that you could, as a woman, be on top, but to be on top, if you had to access your pleasure, you had to perform that particular position in a certain way. And for this, you moved only your hips. You didn't move your upper waist. So women would wear these jingling girdles with lots of gungrus around the upper waist and make sure that the gungrus didn't make a sound. So <laughs> I know, can you imagine the core muscle? I mean, that was like serious. But so in our literature, they never ever say then she climbed up on top and then she humped her. She, they, you just say she put on her jingling girdle. 
And you know she's taken her position on top. So if you know what the jingling girdle stands for, you know what we're talking about. And this is what I mean. Every single thing is written in metaphor. And if you don't know what they're talking about, um, we don't what know what they're talking that's where the storytelling comes into play, isn't it? So maybe a lot of this was distributed through the storytelling and you're an amazing storyteller as well. So it's fascinating. I'm just thinking about accessibility in that and it's, it, you know, the metaphor in that. So it's quite interesting with that. So back to the old times, because, you know, we were having a discussion yesterday, me and Makunda, about India and culture. So how was, you know, if we go back in time with Hinduism, how was, how was, you know, if we relate that to now and modern Western culture, what do you think are the, the parallels and the differences? And why do you, is there a clash of civilizations? Because, you know, when I went back to a Tantra exhibition, I thought, oh, my God, this is quite modern. It's like a futuristic world. But it was India hundreds of years ago. So it, it was fascinating. Yeah, I, I think so, the question has so, to be framed as to what time period, right? Because time changes yeah. everything. So yeah, yeah if, if you want to talk about maybe the time of where, where you're more knowledgeable about Simaji uh, uh, in terms of um, maybe the the Kama Sutra time, Kama Shastra's time, or versus now time, because it, I, I mean, because I'm guessing that's where you focused your most of your uh, research. Yeah. On. Well, I actually started with Tantra many years ago, um, started to study it just because I wanted the knowledge behind it, because it's fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, Tantra is all about knowledge. It's all about philosophy. And again, every time we talk about Tantra, I have to say it's not there's no such thing as tantric sex, you know, because that's everybody's like stinged right. in it. Hence, we can, <laughs> you know, but um, talking about going back and looking at parallels now, interestingly, 325 AD, the very first ecumenical council of the Catholic Church is set up. And from the moment that they are set up, they start to talk about how pleasure is the path to hell. The body is bad, desire is bad, pleasure is bad. By 342 AD, they have already banned, they passed their first law banning oral and anal sex because that is not for procreation, it's purely for pleasure. Now, at exactly the same time, at almost exactly the same time across the oceans, Vatsyayan is sitting on the banks of the river Ganges and he's writing the Kama Sutra. And he's talking about how beautiful is pleasure is the path to heaven. And, you know, and he's sort of really deifying the whole thing so much so that the Kama Sutra is actually written in honor of the goddess Saraswati, the goddess of music and learning, not in honor of Kamdev, you know, which is Cupid or the god of um, love and desire, because they said that everything starts with the brain and a truly desirable lover was a man who was really well-versed in the arts. So, you know, it's just about, anyway, so that aside, um, both texts or both philosophies or both ideas, it's the path to hell, it's the path to heaven, seem to almost emerge at the same time. And they come along. And if you actually go through the history of the world, I found it fascinating because I actually mapped out the history of the world at one point through their ideas and their attitudes on sexuality. And it's fascinating. It's just amazing because come the fifth century, you know, the, the 400s, the Europeans are going through a really bad time. The, Europe, the Roman Empire has fallen. There are floods, there's famine, there's, there's droughts, there's plagues. And 
the Catholic Church is saying it's because of your unbridled lust. This is God's way of punishing you. And across in India, we're telling stories of how there is a drought in this particular kingdom. And it's, there's been a drought for three years running. And on the third year, the, the king doesn't know what to do because he's a really good king. He's devout, he's good. All the Brahmins from all the different kingdoms have come and settled in his kingdom, in his forest, because he's so good to them. And yet, third year running, there's a drought. And he's really worried because he's thinking, now the enemy armies are going to be able to invade us and you know we are not secure anymore. What do we do? And then they call this one particular sage who's supposed to be able to bring rain. And they say to him, what should we do? And the sage looks around and he says, the problem is there hasn't been enough sex in this kingdom. You know, there's just been too much prayer and these, these prayers have burnt up the ground. We need some pleasure. So they host a three-day festival of pleasure where everybody from the kingdom has to participate. And they say that the rains came. Now, the point is, I don't know how far this is true, but I love the idea that it was literally the path to heaven. And in actual fact, my latest research has been about the, um, the 30 uh, love festivals of springtime, which is now in the month of Chetra, you know, starting on the 10th of mm -hmm. April, which have been completely lost to us because most of them were not performed by Brahmins. And they're not about big pujas where people come and give them lots of money. So I guess they didn't think it was worth translating them and keeping them going. Um, most of them are performed by women. They're done as games. They're done oh, yeah. as playfulness. They're the lila. And they're gorgeous. They're little festivals. Like one is, you know, it, and it's all about bringing the earth back to life, you know, putting the pleasure back into nature so that nature can blossom again. So you have one particular festival called the Navlatika, where you women would go and spit a mouthful of wine on the mango tree, on the trunk of the mango tree to make it blossom. And in another one, it is where they would go and paint the bottom of their feet red, which, you know, it was part of their shringar, which is part of their makeup. And then they would go and kick the tree trunk and that would make that blossom. Where's and there's yet, <laughs> sorry. No, no, sorry to interrupt. I was just asking, which part of India does these uh, uh, festivals? So they actually happen across India, and Bhatsyayan mentions a lot of these festivals in the Kama Sutra. Ah. But as with everything, he doesn't actually describe any of them. He just mentions them. And then he leaves it to you. And then it's later commentators who describe them a little bit more and a little bit more. And so you have all this fragmented knowledge, which you're trying to sort of pick up from everywhere just to piece things together. And my favorite one was, uh, or at least it was, and I have to tell you why I'm saying this, was something called the Kadamba Yud, oh. where you would go for picnics and you would take twigs with blossoms and then you would divide into an army of boys versus girls. And you would actually have a battle with your twigs of blossoms with much giggling and so on. And that was my favorite up to a point. And then from, we were just talking, uh, Shahada, before you came, Mukunda and I yeah. were about, um, he was saying that he's into one particular um, branch of tantric um, studies. And I follow the Kashmiri Kaula branch a little bit more. And I found in the um, Nila Mata Puran from one of the Kashmiri um, tantric um, uh, branches, that there was a festival, one of the spring festivals where the men would 
offer up narcissus to Kamdev, to the, uh, to the god of love and desire. After having worshipped Kamdev with it, they would then weave them into their hair, which is again one of the lovemaking traditions. They'd weave them into their hair. They would prepare a pitcher of water, which was scented with various things. And then they would bathe their wives with this scented water. It was one of the rituals. And it's the only ritual I have been able to find where the man bathes the woman with some. It's always normally the other way around where the man is being bathed. And this is one of the spring festivals. I mean, how gorgeous is that? It's like we've we've lost the beauty of pleasure, isn't it? Now, you know, we don't even yeah. use the word pleasure, do we? In a modern context, you know, what is pleasure? And then what you've just spoke about is the essence of, of pleasure, isn't it? Because, you know, pleasure now is consumerism and excess consumerism. And you, you, when you were talking, you could just think about the time. And that was pleasure, wasn't it? And it's organic pleasure and it's not artificial. And I think we've lost that, isn't it, along the way? We have lost it, but I think it's more than just losing it. It's I guess it's been actually erased. It's a, I do think that it's the patriarchal evolution in society which has chosen. It, it, it didn't benefit them. I mean, come on, if you're going to be doing Kadamba Yod, um, the Brahmins aren't getting anything out of it. You know, why would they bother to translate that and keep the festival going? So eventually, this disappears. But for me, it's just this, this idea that it's not just human beings, it's all of nature that has to come alive. The sap has to suddenly shoot up and flood itself into every branch, every tree, every plant, every flower, so that everything can just blossom and come alive and just, you know, be fabulous again. And I, I think that's what we seem to have lost. The idea of pleasure has been associated with sex, with well, I mean, that's what most people think of you. You mentioned what the word pleasure and people think you're talking about sex. And it, it's just, yeah, it's just lost its um, identity. Well, I, I mean, I would, I would venture a lot of that has to do with colonial mores that we've taken on as a world, <laughs> right? You know, um, once, I, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a dichotomy, I mean, not dichotomy, but it's like two-pronged, right? As we become more urbanized, we lose touch with nature and nature inherently gives us this, these kind of pleasures, right? Where you could run around as young boys and girls with sticks in your hands and play these games. And, and really the, the river is right next to you, but it's pure and lovely. And, and you, see, you see nature in a much more, or like, like Shahada says, like organic way, it's connected to you. It, it, it's, it's not there, it's, it's there. It's, you're all part of it. But now in the urban world, it's, you go to nature, right? Oh, we're gonna go for a hike, right? We're gonna go for, we're gonna go to camping. And it's not, it's very difficult to engage personally with nature on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that kind of the pleasure aspect, because pleasure, I think that's where like we find so much pleasure in nature, just naturally. Like when we're there, we, it's pleasurable. And but now pleasure is limited to the only other natural thing we have is eating and and screwing, right? You know, sex. Like so, these two become the pleasurable things in our life, and when that's the what we talk about it. And that's kind of it, it is sad. It, it's very sad to me. And and I feel but like I think when you, know, you when you talk about sorry no when you talk about the colonial mores I think that that's such a huge issue because you have to remember that you know, unfortunately in India we do not come from a tradition where we believed in translating our texts for the common man so everything was kept kind of closed and for the elite and so on. Well, I'm going to push so back on that a little bit, just a little bit. Sorry, um, yeah, because, go 
because a lot of it, like direct translations, you're correct. Like if you go from Sanskrit to a local language, very, very, very rarely did that happen until probably like the 11th, 12th century CE or 80, whatever. And then when you translate to Persian or Tamil or whatever at that point. But there was a huge, huge um, vernacular language system where these texts would come out, not direct translation, but their own version in these uh, uh, very various vernacular languages that people can speak, read, like Dhyaneshwari in, in Marathi came out and you have a oh, whole absolutely. bunch of these. Yeah, sorry, sorry. And the Marathi, the Prakrit, no, most yeah. of the Prakrit literature is in Marathi, but yeah. you still have to remember that a lot of the texts weren't translated uh, and they weren't necessarily, even the ones that were written, as you said, from yeah. information from yeah. the text, they were still written um, for a particular level of society because everybody still wasn't being taught how to read or write and because of that a lot of those texts did get lost and unfortunately when the when the colonial powers come along and translate them they translated it from an orientalist point of view which you know okay fair enough they translate them they make them available to us again but a lot of it got screwed up thanks to that yeah. Um, you know, which and that's where. So in one of the old texts, I was actually reading um, Briffo translating some of these festivals and talking about the Pichkari, which you use at Holi, mm-hmm. as the phallus shaped object that Hindus <laughs> use to squirt water at each other. Everything's phallus And then he goes. Yeah. I know, and then he goes on to get really distressed. So what I was trying to say was, that unfortunately, we you not only do we lose a lot of our texts because they're written on palm leaf. Then we lose a lot of our texts because they're not translated. Then we lose a lot of our texts because then they get translated by the Orientalists. Mm-hmm. And so looking for them again is like 2000 years worth of losing stuff Yeah. to actually come back to it. And I was just gonna say, I, I found this book because I literally for my research, I will read everything, whether it's good or bad or indifferent sure. because <laughs> I need to know every translation and I need to know what everybody's saying and I found a particularly bad book a particularly bad book whose name the guy's name I can't remember Arthur something written sometime in the 50s and he calls it the jewel in the lotus I think he sat down in bed one day and he thought okay let me make it all up I mean he's literally made everything up and everything is about a phallus shaped object everything it doesn't matter what it is so he talks for instance about I don't know if you've ever come across this phenomenon called the um, night runners of Bengal. No, no. What is that? Okay. So in the, just before the 57 uprising, the 1857 mm. uprising, there's a strange thing that happens where a group of men appear from almost nowhere. Nobody knows where they came from and nobody knows eventually where they disappeared to, but they would run every night they would ride, run at night from one village to another carrying a pile of chapatis on their head and they wouldn't say anything they would get to the next village and all they would say is sab lal ho jayega everything will turn red and it's just i mean they they, they say that they came from one of the shiva temples in um, in bengal mm-hmm. so they we think that there might be some kind of tantric associations but nobody actually knows i mean we're full of theories on this So this man writes that this was actually a tantric sexual ritual where the man was the phallus and the roti was the yoni, it was the vagina. 
I mean, how deeply weird do you have to be? To, it, it was, you know, they, they discovered Tantra with their chakra pujas and they'd realized that they had fodder for writing stuff because it didn't make any sense to them. And yeah. they just kind of went to town on it. You know, just on the... Go ahead, Sarada. So I was just going to say, we were talking about Akazu because we had this before in America, that there's... What is, what is the impact like what what's the relationship that you have with academia at universities it, is there a lot of experts like yourself or you know chaps like this so I just think you know because <laughs> I remember we've had conversations before that you know are we represented in academia to push for things that interest us through our own history I mean what's been your relationship and your experience with academia in India and here maybe even in the states Sorry, Mukunda, did you? I, I'll answer that in a second. I know Mukunda was about to say something. I don't know if there's. Oh yeah, yeah. I was just, I, I was just gonna make a comment that, um, you remember, these are the same kind of people that thought that, you know, you know, before women, when you wear a sari, now you're wearing a blouse. We didn't wear blouses before. It was just that that the pallu that would cover it, right? Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. Britishers and and most Europeans came and looked at it. They're like, that's that's uncouth. It's it's uncivil yeah. that for women's breasts to be hanging out or because. Like parts of India, in the uh, uh, if you wore a sari, you'd cover it. Other parts in South India were super hot. Women just wore the same clothes as men did. You would just wear well, uh, a lower portion, actually, and you'd be bare chested. Actually, That's, in Kerala, there yeah. was there was a tax. No, there was a tax for covering your breasts. So yeah. if you didn't have the money to pay that tax, you couldn't cover yourself up. Yeah. So unfortunately, it, yeah. So there, were, and yes, you're right. You know, in ancient times, um, it was considered impure to wear anything stitched on the upper part of your body. So you didn't wear a blouse. Um, but yeah, going back to the um, academia. So I have to say that there are amazing scholars on the subjects of different aspects of um, ancient Indian literary studies. There's a lot of them. I have found very few who have actually focused on the subject that I'm working on, but there are some. So I, I just find that there aren't any, I haven't been able to find somebody who's focused on it so much that they can actually answer all my questions. So there's Wendy Doninger, for instance, um, there's Alf Hiltbeitel, there's, um, he's very, very good. Um, then there is, um, oh God, uh, who's the man who wrote uh, Lee, God, what's his name? Um, the man who wrote uh, Love in a Dead Language. Oh, I haven't read that one, no. Okay, he's particularly well-versed in this. He's amazing. Okay. Uh, what's his name? I can't remember. I'll, I'll find it right now. Okay, <laughs> yes, please, if you look it up. Um, so there are people, Lee a lot of them are, Lee Sagal, that's it. Oh, yeah. um, Lee Siegel. Yeah. Now, so there are scholars on it, but I find that, you know, because karma, the idea of karma, permeated into every part of life. It wasn't just about sexuality. So if you look at music, for instance, you know, a lot of the ragas, a lot of the music was based on karma. And so you would have people who specialize in the ragas and they might have a little bit of knowledge on that bit of it. But even there, okay, I have to tell you what I discovered recently and I was just blown away. So one of the, the idea again in ancient times was that when you went to make love, when you went to meet your lover, it wasn't like, you know, okay, take your makeup off, put in an old nighty on, turn the lights off, and then you make love. You know, lovemaking was the path to pleasure. It was divine. You got dressed for it. 
you know, you did your Shringhar, you did your Sola Shringhar, you adorned yourself for it, you, you acknowledged what you were doing. What, the last thing that you did with your Shringhar was you wore a little lotus bud behind your ear. And the reason for this is that when the sun, the, the rule was that when the sun comes up, you stop making love, you have to stop and you wake up and you have to worship the sun, you have to do your prayers and you start your day's work. So, you know, this was, you couldn't carry on making love. So if you were inside and the curtains were drawn, you didn't know that the sun had come up. But as soon as the sun comes up, the lotus blossoms. So it was like oh. an alarm clock. Okay. Now in our ancient literature, you would have, or in the paintings, you would have the woman covering up the lotus bud because she doesn't want to leave her lover's arms. So she doesn't want to leave him. So she would cover up the lotus bud. Now, there is a wonderful rag called Bhatyar. So you have Bhairav, which is a very early morning rag, and you wake up to Bhairav. It's a very mm -hmm. stern rag. You wake up to the place, you wake up. Bhatyar is the rag which gives you that extra 15 minutes to snuggle back into bed, just kind of go back into your <laughs> dreams. And it was played, it was the rag for, you know, like basically if the woman is curling back into her lover's arms, knowing that she has a few more minutes with him, it wow. is represented in bhav or in rasa. It's the ancient snooze, it's the ancient snooze button. It's the ancient snooze button. So it's represented by the patiyat. And again, like I said, you wouldn't have to say it. You just, you, you, you said, you played the rag patiyat. You knew what the, what the bhav, you know, what the essence of it was. Today, when you play it, nobody actually knows what the essence of bhav is because that's, again, those bits have been lost. So, you know, then there are the mudras that all represented certain mm -hmm. pleasure cycles. It comes from the chapter called Ungli Prayog, which was that, you know, a woman's pleasure was very, very important. And pleasuring her with the fingers, either she did it for herself or her partner did it for her. It was an extremely important thing. And you learned it as a skill. And taking from Ayurveda that, you know, every single finger has a different element. So it's earth, water, air, fire, wind. Every combination of finger brings a different sensation. And there were a lot of different mudras. So, you know, you could have one where you would literally join, let's say the ring finger with the thumb. And you might think, or you would sort of do it backwards. So, you know, if you have the, uh, the second finger pulling back on your first finger, for instance, um, so you kind of, creating an elliptical shape. But all of these were pleasure mudras and they get transferred into dance and nobody now knows what those mudras stand for. But they yeah. were supposed to access a different pleasure point and the sensation it was supposed to bring you was a particular way. So yeah. It, it's corollary, right? Because of the, the Natya Shasta, which I have back there, you know, it was roughly around the same time written as Vatsyayana, yes. you know, you know, give or take a few hundred years, but it was roughly around the same time. The mudras are talked about there, but again, this goes back to, they mean different things in different contexts, right? Because, the, the, go ahead, sorry. You're about to say something. No, no, you're absolutely right. I was just saying that when you read the Ras Leelas, they will literally describe the Ras, the, the love between Krishna and Radha through the mudras. Yeah. And they're supposed to be different. They're supposed to represent pleasure and different sensations. You know, in different, not every single mudra, but I'm talking about a whole bunch of them, um, which were made for this, which are used constantly now in dance. But of course, nobody really knows what we're talking about. 
Similarly with Pan, let's say, I have to tell you about the Pan, for instance. <laughs> I discovered the chapter on Pan by pure chance in an 11th century commentary of a much older text, older even than the Kama Sutra, written by a Buddhist monk called Padmashri, where he talks, you know, Pan had a huge erotic vocabulary. So like I said, back in the 300 and something 80, you didn't have phones to message your lover with and you didn't have paper and pencil. So you mm -hmm. could, and lovers need to send each other messages. You don't just say, Hallmark card, I love you. You know, there are so many other things. So different shapes of Pan and different fillings of Pan had different messages. You could say everything from, um, you know, I love you to, okay, I'll be in it for the sex, but I'm not interested otherwise, or I've got a headache, don't come over today, or don't call me, I hate you, or I've hooked you, or anything. I mean, there was even a pawn for getting your guests to leave if you wanted to be with your lover. You have to, <laughs> yeah, you fragranced your pawn with cinnamon, your guests knew that they had to get out. So <laughs> there's a huge vocabulary, but we don't know the vocabulary because like I said, it's been lost to us. Um, and I just think that's so sad. Yeah, that's very sad. It's so, I mean, it just makes you like, because we lose what was the vibrancy of ancient India, right? When we think about the world now, ancient India, we think about this like really autocratic, like almost rigid Brahmins walking around, just chanting. There's, it, 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 I'm sure that was there too, but it was such so much more dynamic than than pictures we get. Like even when you watch TV shows about like Chanakya or something, it seems much more rigid and and not like this flowerful bursting place of imagination, creativity, and like love and existence. Yeah, I mean, like they never ever tell you that Chanakya's treasury used to host. Um, I mean, they used to actually store perfume resin. Yeah, because. Perfume was such an important part of um, your your pleasure of your life that it was actually stored like precious gems in the treasury, and they never tell you about the fact that you, you know jewelry, for instance, as I said earlier, that you know your your jewelry was worn for specific positions and so on. So every position had its own jewelry. So did you know that in the time of Chanakya, um, if a woman, a courtesan, particularly was arrested for something, you could confiscate all her property, but not even the king could confiscate her jewelry. I did not know that. That was her, the tool of her trade. Uh, yeah, so even with Chanakya, they never actually talk about this. I mean, he yeah. was Machiavelli, of course. Yeah, he, he was out there for the benefit, for the profit of the kingdom. Fair enough. But he's the one who legalized prostitution. I mean, he yeah. said that, you know, um, Courtesans were legal. He had a hierarchy for them. He had a subedar, you know, who would. He also wanted them to be sure spies. That. <laughs> that was also a good reason. <laughs> they were his spies, absolutely. They were his spies, and he had people regulating. So, yeah. you know, the subedars knew how much the woman had earned, how much she owed to the state, etc. Yeah, and you see that also in in, in the Buddhist text, right? Like, you know, Amarpali, yes. uh, all these, like the 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 world of the courtesans was was they had some good amount of power in, in some ways. And, and so, Asimaji, uh, uh, do you know much about the Devadasi tradition until the, they were break, broken down by the British? Do you have a sense of what that was like? So I think it comes right back to, I mean, I once said this to somebody and I was told that you're not going to 
link the Devdasis to the courtesans. Otherwise, I'm going to come after you because we have enough problems to deal with, with what the British said. We're not going to destroy the Devdasi tradition. I was like, okay, I will not say anything. <laughs> but yeah, basically, <laughs> basically, um, I've, you know, it's about as much as we know about the courtesans. Now, I mean, I, I know that there would have been a line between um, different hierarchies of courtesans. Mm -hmm. And there were obviously the Devdasis who were especially for the king or, you know, so they were for God and king. Um, funnily enough, I was actually translating an old story from the Brihat Katha, mm -hmm. which talks about something similar. So it was the Devdasis, much like the very senior courtesans in um, Greek civilization, the Hetera, I think they also, it was part of their duties to also maintain the temples. So they provided the money mm -hmm. for the worship of the God as well. So yeah, you're right. It was a powerful position, but um, you know, how much of it has got lost over time and changed over time? I, I don't know. Yeah, that's, I mean, cause we don't have too much. I mean, that's also the problem in Indian history. There's not that much historiographical epigraphical evidence that we have we have spurts of it but not that much it also probably because the 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 climate destroyed a lot of the the palm leaves the manuscripts well it's, it, it was much easier in, in the european world to uh, to maintain that stuff it's much harder in the indian climate i i also think that the europeans have a different attitude towards preservation that's right um, that's true. we don't i mean till date I will go into what, you know, one of these Kabariwalas or what they call, they call themselves antique shops now. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's this guy recently, he had discovered one of the, um, so one of the translations done during Mughal, so only a couple of hundred years ago, uh, during the Mughal time of the Kamshastra, one of the Kamshastras. And um, he, he was sort of offering it to me and I said, no, that's just too much. I'm not going to pay that much for it. And he said, Oh, no problem. I can just rip out. And he was prepared to rip out the, you know, the leaves. And like, you can have them as separately. It's like, ah. But yeah, so we don't have a thing about preservation at all. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a very sad thing. Um, there's so much. Like, I, I think that someone indicated to me there's something like 40 million manuscripts still out there that have yet to be translated in, in, in I'm India. sure. Which is I'm crazy, sure. right? I mean, uh, like the, the amount of the amount of uh, document and liter literature we had, you know, it, it dwarfed the Western world until about the 1800s. Um, so, and the sad thing is, we don't have access to most of it. Just like you said, for the ver for all these reasons, you know, whether it's the elites or the the lack of being able to uh, people to translate it and people to pass it down and traditions dying and. It's a very sad situation, but and but the work you're doing we is great. Up, yeah, saying, thank you. But what elements just... would? Sorry, Seema. I was going to say, what elements no, no. would you bring back if you could bring back five elements from ancient times? What would you bring back? Ooh, what would I bring back? I would definitely bring back a study of the Prabandhams, which were the epic romances written in verse. I would definitely bring those back. I would definitely change this attitude that we have towards our stories because our stories, our mythology has come to be nothing more than kids' stories that have been translated badly. Mm -hmm. They were originally created to explain the philosophies. I would bring those stories back as they were. Um, those are definitely two of the elements that I would bring back. 
I would bring back the idea that pleasure is a good thing and that it should be. And okay, let's also not get carried away by saying that we were such a feminist society no, we that, weren't. you know, we weren't. No. And when we talk about the, uh, the Kamshastras, they were one strand of literature. They were a parallel strand of literature that were talking about pleasure and the empowerment of women. There was another strand of literature that was completely the opposite to it. That's right. So, uh, you know, but I would like to bring back that strand of pleasure. Um, two other things. What else would I bring back? I don't know. Um, I haven't thought about it. What would you bring back? Yeah, Shahada, what would you bring back? I think more love. You know, I, I don't watch much Bollywood now, but back in the day, <laughs> and you just think, yeah, but it's really weird. When we watched it, like, in the 70s, there was, you know, it's really weird. There was a rape scene. It was quite normal, wasn't it, in the 70s? But you just, you know, you told, close your eyes, cover yourself, or watching it with your aunties and uncles. But if you think about it, love was very much something a woman resisted, wasn't it, for her dignity. And then you got the 80s and 90s, and they're just rampant Cardi B videos now, isn't it? That's happening in our videos. So, but, but then you look back and you think, but actually in the 70s, were women that empowered in terms of love? But I think the women weren't one dimensional that they are now. I just think women are seen as one dimensional. And I don't know, maybe when you look back, it was all in the expressions and how women carried themselves. They seemed more multidimensional as well. So I just think, you know, we look back and that's one thing I worry about is how women are perceived and sexualization of women. I was quite surprised when I was researching that in a UN report that India had the most sexualized, Bollywood was the most sexualized. Oh, yeah. and I, I, I thought, no, it can't be. But then you thought, actually, when you look at every movie, and the focus of women is so one dimensional. But so it, that's why I was talking about accessibility as well. And the old text, was it for the elite? But the lower caste was just seen, you know, was it a bit of just sexual position and procrastinated? So it just, I just thought, you know, how yeah. are women really perceived? Yeah, so I don't know uh, about the uh, Kamashasa because I haven't read very much of them. That's my own issues. But uh, um, I, I mean, I can only speak about like things like the general itihasas or puranas or dharmashasas, right? Like if you talk about Mahabharata Ramayana, Ramayana was probably more well-read by most people, uh, at least because you have to remember this, these were oral traditions at some point and they were, and then they eventually became written and whatever. So they were performed in many ways and that's how they were passed on. Um, especially like Mahabharata, if you look at hundred thousand verses, how is anyone going to memorize that in a pre-literate society? Right. So you, you'd have it in, in, in pieces and even the text itself, it's funny or it's not funny, but the situation is they call it the Sri Shudra Shastra. It is, it is the text for the women and the Shudras who don't have access to the Vedic text. So all these other texts are meant, meant to be for regular people. Whether or not it ended up getting there is a whole another story, I think. Um, because I think, they, so yeah, go ahead. This three, this three Shudra Shastra, which is part of the whole um, Tantra tradition again, um, it, you know, the, it's such an esoteric, I mean, the, the teachings of Tantra are so esoteric that even the elite, um, unless you actually became an initiate, mm -hmm. you won't even understand it then. So the average person was definitely not going to, unfortunately, understand it. But to go back to what you were saying, Shahada, 
Unfortunately, yes, that is the reality, um, is that these texts were written for the educated and the elite. Um, I cannot say very much to you about what was considered, uh, I guess it was very much as it was in Europe when you were the lower classes, when you're the working class, when you're the serfs, yeah. um, you know, you you didn't have the either the privilege or the the ability to do a lot of the same stuff. When when it comes back to women in Bollywood, you know, I think that the oh yeah, it, I don't think that the women were multidimensional back then. I think it was worse. And I think what I hate about Bollywood is that it's kind of perpetuated this narrative of how the, the girl is walking along, the hero comes along and he pursues her and he teases her and he does all this. And it's seen as heroic, you know, it's seen as the cool thing to do. Look at the, the narrative that they perpetuated. It became okay to eve tease, it became okay to behave like that because the hero was doing that. And in every wretched film, it always starts with that, you know, the girl is not interested. She gets pursued to within an inch of her life. Then there comes the, the villain who decides that he's <laughs> going to rape her. And, the, you know, the hero protects her and he saves her. And she never really, had, I mean, you know, it, 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 I'm sorry, but it was just, it's awful. I mean, it's awful. it was awful then and it's worse now when women are just, <laughs> Uh, basically like dancing figures on the screen barely clothed for the purpose of it's, it's not for purpose of sexuality of showing their own it's to make men be like oh look at how they look it's, it's a very different purpose it, it's it's a you know like it's one it, thing it's for to sell the box office yeah really. yeah which is terrible uh i mean but i mean if we take it back to the past you know like what we end up having is a mixture of both right it, like a lot of the stories you hear like you know drukmini to to Krishna, you know, uh, uh, who, who else is it? Like Krishna's kids all get the women right to them saying, I love you, must ki you must kidnap me from my family. And then you have other situations where men like, I know Dushanta and uh, Shakuntala, he finds this beautiful woman in the forest and they just for one night and making love, they get married and then he goes on his way. I mean, so there's this weird dichotomy. I mean, I'm not saying it, 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 it exemplifies women of, women who had all the free choice but there seems to be a different perception of women in the past than it is today where they're much more active participants in the story even though they might be lesser in the story they're not relegated to simply being the damsel in distress i think it's just how the stories have been translated and brought forward and i really do object to that this is why i was saying i want to bring the stories back yeah. you know when we talk about the ramayan for instance yeah. every girl growing up in india you ask any young girl yeah. Do you want to be Sita when you grow up? No, she doesn't, because the way we tell that story. That's right. And yet, I have come to Sita much later in my life, and I'll tell you what, she was an amazing woman. Oh, yeah. I would happily have that kind of, the, the strength that Sita had. You know, people never tell the story of how when Sita is kidnapped and she's held by Ravan for a whole year, she's captive, alone. Yeah. You know, Ram is with his family, he's with his, I mean, he's with his brother, he's got all his people around him who love him. Yeah. She's all alone in the middle of an enemy camp. She has to keep her wits about her enough to be firm enough to make sure that nobody gets too close and takes advantage of her, but sweet enough to make sure that they don't kill her out of anger. Can you imagine the sort of inner strength the woman must have had 
to be able to balance that situation. We never talk about that. We never talk about the fact that when Ravan kidnaps her, you know, she's up there in his flying chariot. She he's a having a fight thought. with, yeah, I mean, he's having this fight with uh, Jatayu, you know, yeah. and she's out there petrified for her life. She has enough, you know, enough presence of mind to take off her jewelry, throw it down so that somebody can look for her. You know, come on, there. She was an amazing woman. At oh. the end of the story, she goes off with her two children and she brings them up all, but she doesn't ask for help. Her husband is the king. She doesn't ask him for help. She brings them up by herself. Yeah. And we don't tell the story of how, when she is asked to leave Ayodhya, when finally, when the Dobi says, oh, yeah. but, you know, yeah. she doesn't just leave because Ram says, go. Uh, you know, apparently in the, um, oh God, in one of the Ramayans, again, I can't remember, was it the Adputra? Okay, in one of the Ramayans, it says that there is a court case that takes place at the end. And the citizens put forward their arguments for and against whether or not Sita should go. And the final argument is that the only time that Sita takes a decision for herself, where she's not told by either her husband or her brother-in-law, her father or father-in-law, is when she steps over the Lakshman Rekha. And it's the only time she decides it for herself. And she does it because she says, you know, when Robin says to her, oh, you know, I wonder what the people will say that the, the daughter-in-law of this great house didn't come to give water to me, you know, to this old man that I am. So she says, okay, I better, you know, better go and give him this water. Otherwise people will just say bad things about us. So she takes her decision, the only time for herself. And people say, well, if she could step over the boundaries laid out for her, willfully we don't know what else she could do and that's when she takes the she takes on the consequences of her action she says yes I did that and fair enough if that means that I have to go I have to go but imagine now if you tell that story with that angle it puts a whole different story it, it puts a whole different identity out for her because now she is this empowered woman who's saying yeah okay I did that I'm taking the consequences of my actions. And that's exactly what she does at the end, because this is the third time that Rama says to her, you know, prove your innocence. And she says, you know what, I've had enough. Yeah. I just can't take this anymore. Thank you. This highlights the strength of the feminine spirit, doesn't it? And it's, yeah. like you said, it's the narrative you choose to take as women you know, it's the narrative you choose to take, and you've chosen that narrative, or you could you, know, you could have picked the narrative that she was, you know, taken, held hostage, but she dealt with her situation and how she dealt with, was with her strength and probably with her femininity as well to deal with the situation that she's in. And that's what we know we were talking about, you know, multidimensional as a woman, and she was actually, wasn't she? She, she dealt was. with her situation and was able to deal with it and, well, and yeah. make... She didn't just she collapse and die. She lived through it all. She did. That would have happened she in Bollywood. She would have collapsed so, and died. <laughs> so by the way, like, so when Rama, in, in the earlier part of the, of, the, of the text, when Rama is going to the forest because he's Spanish, um, he, he tells Sita, you're staying here. And she responds back in, in quite a bit of language saying, how, how dare he make decisions for her? How dare he tell her what her duty is? How dare he inter intercede in what she wants to do, right? And it's a long conversation. Yeah. And it's basically, I will take the decision to go with you. That's my choice. You can't stop me. 
So this is yeah. this is this is where she's also steady putting her her foot down and saying, "Yeah, fine. You're telling me this is what I need to do, but I, I don't need to listen. I have a life of my own within the boundaries that a, a patriarchal. We have to be honest, a somewhat patriarchal society mm -hmm. gave her, and she played mm -hmm. within those boundaries. Now, is she the same level of of? Can you compare to Dropathy in any way? Sure, you can, because Dropathy has you know a much more fiery personality when it comes to external world, but." Um, I mean, Sita also, I mean, you could definitely compare. I, I actually, I, yeah. I actually think that Draupadi is not as strong as, or in a different way, because huh. I actually think that she had a much, she had an awful, awful deal given to her. She didn't plan to marry these, all these five guys that's put upon her. She's treated pretty badly. She takes it. And I think one of the worst things in Draupadi's story is that every single time she has to go from one husband to the other at the end of every year. Yeah. She's supposed to take this so-called purification bath where she becomes a virgin again. You know, they, they talk about it. And, and I just think, huh, first you divide her between you guys. She didn't ask for it. Yeah. Then you actually expect her to purify. You know, you have other wives that you're sleeping with at That's the right. same time. But they put this down on her character. And I just... I, I, I just think that she had a really shitty deal. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a tough one to grapple with, right? You know, you have to grapple with the fact that, you know, uh, uh, it, it's the decision of a woman that put another woman in this situation. Like Kunti saying, you should yeah. all marry. Um, and it, it actually- and Kunti, does, and Kunti does it just to make sure that, you know, her that she doesn't lose power does, over her sons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not power over sons. I think for me, the, the idea is they they be united, and the only way they'll be united was with the single. No, point no, it of was contact. very much also about the fact that if they all get married to different wives, yeah, yeah they go their separate ways. directions. So yeah. she actually now controls them. Still, she tells them what, and there's that lovely anecdote. Well, not lovely, but you know what I'm mean, very telling uh, yeah. story where they're in the forest, where the five boys, the five brothers, sleep next to each other. Yeah, and. Kunti sleeps across their heads and Draupadi sleeps across their feet. Yeah, I, you know? I, I don't think that's in the text. I think that's just how they visually describe it later. The text doesn't really describe it, that that the way their sleeping positions are. It, it is actually, it, it is written in one of the texts. Now, Not I think it was in Pilal's in Pilal's version of it. Okay, maybe he has it. It's not in the, the Mahabharata proper. Um, in 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 this in the Sanskrit, I don't. I, I at least I haven't seen it. But regardless of that, I think like the, the interesting part is also here when the time when she's about to get married, or you know, they decide that because Drupada, her dad, was like, no, I, hell, hell, I don't want my daughter to marry five men. That this is like against dharma and all this stuff. And you have Vyasa have to come and give like he gives like four reasons or three reasons. One is her past life that she she. She was doing yeah. penance and then five times said, I want a hus good husband. And so Shiva gives her, he gives her all at once. So the other one is that in fact, she is Sri, the, uh, the avatar of Sri or incarnation of Sri, which is, you know, uh, the goddess of auspiciousness and kingly power. And she was married previously because she remains with kings and gods. So there were five other gods that were trapped in a cave and they were trapped there were five of the previous indras and they were reborn as the pandavas and she as shri means to be with them because their power derives from shri so that's a cosmological explanation and then the finally the, the explanation given is the historical one is re, so vyasa's statement is 
previously in time, women used to go with whoever they wanted. Who, they used to sleep with whoever they wanted, however they wanted. Um, and even if they're married, they can go with whatever man they wanted. So what happened is there's this guy, I mean, uh, this, uh, this uh, sage named Shweta Ketu, who saw his father um, and his mother married, but he saw his mother go off with another man and he was upset about it. So what happened is he instituted the law that men, the women have to be married to only uh, uh, one man. They couldn't go with anyone else. So Vyasa's point was these kind of situations change over time. And Draupadi in this situation can marry multiple men. Now, we have no idea if she wanted to marry five men or not, because the text does not give us any indication of that. Um, if, so throughout the rest of the text, she, she shows some places where she's, she's okay with the other places where she doesn't like it. So it's a very interesting dynamic. I, whenever I've read whichever bits of it, it's always that she was always in love with Arjun. She didn't want to be with the others and she gets stuck with all of this. And yes, at one yeah. point, there is also a certain power that she thinks she's going to get. But in the end, um, there isn't even that because each of them have a different wife, except for Bhishma, who absolutely adored her. But uh, the others... Sorry, oh, not Bhishma. Sorry, Bhim. Sorry, Bhim. Not Bhishma. Sorry, sorry. No, Bhima had another um, wife. He had Hidamba. He did. No, no, but yeah. he absolutely adored her. He loved yeah. Drogba. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, you know, as opposed to the others who didn't um, particularly. She was just an. Well, I mean, so there. I'll put it this way: if, if you read the the Vana Parva, um, and that's mostly the conversations between Yudhishthira and Draupadi about these things. It's actually very, very interesting how she talks. Her voice comes through very powerfully as not only someone that is. Um, it, you know, very strong in her position, but deeply intelligent, deeply critical of his decisions, deeply um, uh, concerned with 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 how she's perceived and what rights she has. It's it's a so Devana Parva mm -hmm. is actually a great location, you know, to spend time if you want to get her personality to come out. Also, um, we were talking about Al Thilpait earlier. Yeah. He did one called from um, something to Ginji, from Ginji to which is that one. Um, the cult of Draupadi. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, it's uh, the cult of Draupadi one where it talks about... That his... has some amazing stories oh, yeah. um, that he actually brings in as well. Yeah, a lot from South India at that point, yeah? It's a lot yeah. of a lot yeah. of stories about That's the... the Ginji, yeah, from yeah. the Ginji region, yeah. But it, but the, again, so like the primary text is one thing, but there's so many traditions around these uh, around these characters and these stories that that embellish, that, that to make it something else, they change it, they make it fuller, they, they give it more life and they bring it and nuance it within their region, right? Like, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I always wonder about like how, how different our society would have been if we weren't under the British rule and we had continuity of some of this. If we had, if, is there a way for us to have liberalized ourselves through our own indigenous practice or did we necessarily need the West to come and bring these values to us. What are your Good thoughts question. on that? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, you see evolution takes take place. You see things move, things change. I don't know. I mean, the way that I see a lot of Indian society today, yeah. God, they need help. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Because maybe you feel it's more constructs, isn't it? that you've, because at the time, I remember when I was looking at civilization, I was like, wow, it's really modern, but there's less constructs, wasn't it? What do you mean by that? Like, you know, marriage, polygamy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sex. I, I, it was really relaxed. You're like, oh, but 
like you said, I, if, if colonialism never occurred, how different would India be right now? So I'm not sure that that was such a great, so, you know, um, when Mukunda was talking about Shweta Ketu, so the, the story is that till then, um, mm. there's this idea of, um, what do they call the Basavis? Yeah. This thing of, um, you know, the women could go with whoever. It was actually, from what I've been reading and studying, it was that a woman with an empty womb was considered a sin. And so any man had the right to impregnate her, even if she was married and the husband was away or whatever, he had the right to impregnate her. So a lot of people actually tell it from the other point of view that the woman didn't have the choice when she, you know, when she ends up with, um, so, you know, because there's this one little interpolation about the Mahabharata that when all the men are killed in the battle, mm -hmm. And the, the fear is, that if you remember in the Bhagavad Gita, at one point, there is this place where Arjun says yeah, to Lord he, Krishna, he says, he, said, yeah, he says that we shouldn't do this because the men will be killed. And you know what the women are like? They can't control themselves. They'll go off and have sex with somebody else and they'll have yeah. children. By, and Avarna will be ruined, you know, yeah. be corrupted. And um, so at the but end- But Krishna doesn't it, respond to that, by the way. He no, he doesn't. never gives a single answer. In fact, Absolutely. the next, the first thing he ends up saying to him is, "You speak as if you're knowledgeable." You, you know, was it "Pragna Vadas the Bashe, Gadasu Nagadasuncha Nanushocha the Pandita"? That's the first thing he says to him. You speak as if you know what you're saying, that you're wise, but you are you don't. And then he goes into like he doesn't ever touch touch that argument. He just leaves it on the wayside. <laughs> it's it's a man, but. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that this situation does arise later. Yeah. And there is that point where the elders say, what about all the property? Because the, so the elders are there and then the wives are left. And, mm -hmm. you know, so the women are told to go and get themselves impregnated. And so that the property and the estates can be passed down to the children. And at this point, um, they they talk about the Pasavis, that the women had to be Pasavis, so they were like the bulls. They they were like the, um, you know, and they had to wander and this thing. So I don't know, you know, it's, there is just this, uh, it always bothers me when I come across this particular bit because. Yeah, because I, I think the Basavi thing, to be honest, I don't think that makes sense in that time period. It was, a, I think the Basavi issue might have been a later issue, especially if you think that the, the Mahabharata was set in like a, the end of the Vedic age towards the, the Upanishad age or something like that. I, that doesn't seem to be the case with all the other evidence we have from that time period that that, was, that would have been the issue um, in terms of women having to just sleep with whatever, uh, which, whichever men. There is, the, there is the flip side injunction in, in many of the Dharmashastras that if a woman comes to you and wants to be satisfied, you are obligated you're, to do so. You are obligated to do so. Because <laughs> if you don't, then you are consigned to hell. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> there is that flip side, but I have never seen anything that's saying that a woman has to take any, any man when she's, um, you know. No, that, this is one of the things that they talk about in the um, in the Kamshastras. So they okay. actually say that there is this thing about, you know, that um, it, and this is what happens, you know, in the story of, let's say, Brihaspati, when he decides to impregnate, mom, you know, his brother's wife. Yeah. 
when the brother is away, even though she keeps saying, I'm pregnant already, don't do this, and so yeah. on. So there, there is both sides of it. But yeah, yes, but there's, right. I, and there's a lot of indignation it. against that, right? Brahaspati is not let loose. No, 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 God, no, because they actually punish Mamta for this at the end, yeah. you know, where they say that we were, because she, she gets rid of his child, he impregnates her, and the gods say, how dare you get rid of the child, and they make the child blind. So she's actually told off. So it was very much a Brahminical thing about, um, you know, if a woman is going to stand up for her rights, it was really, really done. As I said, all stories are done to create an identity. So right. this was about if as a woman, you stand up for your rights. Earlier it was, okay, we will punish you. You will be treated like a halya. You will be ostracized. You yeah. will be chucked out. And then it comes to this point, okay, women are still, because I have some great stories from the Skanda Quran. Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, the women, even when they're turned into stone, they kind of, we're told that they mingle with Mother Earth and they get a power of their own and they become yeah. shelter for other women. Yeah. But um, there is this bit then where they say, well, we will then punish your children. And a lot of the women back off because it's like, okay, please don't punish my child. So these stories were told for that reason, I guess. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so it, it's a... It's such a vast narrative over so many thousands of years. And I think what bothers me is the stories that they come as they come forward, as we tell them. Yeah. Because honestly, till we stop, till we start telling the stories differently, nothing is gonna change. Or, or, or yeah, we tell them differently and we allow for the fact that these things are multi, multi, multi-level, right? There are so many different aspects to that story, w whether there's a kernel of historic truth or metaphoric truth or spiritual truth or something else, they're, they're there for a purpose. And, and to be honest, like when, when I think about how deeply these stories are intertwined with each other and, and through history, in some ways it feels like it, it was intended to be uh, like this codex of thought where you could delve into a story from so many different angles whether it's the linguistic angle, because like some of the names mean something, right? They're all connected yeah. to each other. It's it's brilliant in some ways. Oh, absolutely. And I think I, I, one of my problems as a storyteller, sorry, Shahara, I'll just stop in a second. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that one of my problems as a storyteller telling Indian stories is I never know where to start and I never know where to finish <laughs> because there's right. no start and there's no end. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And I'm so tempted to say, oh, but this happens because that. You know, and <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> There's no end of beginning. Sometimes, do you sometimes just uh, change the ending, just switch it up a bit? I, sometimes I do because I just don't know how the hell to. I, I never know. I, I finish a story when I run out of time. It's like, okay, sorry, we've run out of time. And, and the thing is, there's so many variants of that story. You can change the story and it's still part of the damn story. And that's like, it's this never ending cycle. And I feel like it's a, the Russian doll. You open it, you open it, you open it. And you're like, oh, I got to, to get to this story, I got to go through all these stories. <laughs> it's it's yeah. fascinating. When you were talking of storytelling, I was just thinking, you know, because I always thinking about how stories are told to the masses. And I always think, you know, even in Islam, that sometimes the fear stories are the ones that are told to the masses as an element of control. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the stories yeah. you're telling me and the intellectuals hear all the beautiful, pleasurable stories and everyone else will be hearing all the, the storytelling and they're the elements of construct and it's all yeah. based in and fear. We use it now in politics. Yeah, the, fear, back, the, the finger wagging, the finger wagging, yeah. The fear porn, that's what I call it, the fear porn. Yeah. And, and so the other lot, I, I call them the hope porn stories because they're so <laughs> ridiculously hopeful 
that there's nothing true or real about the amount of hope they give you. So they're hope porn. They're totally unreal. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like watching Murder, She Wrote. I love it because everything comes together in the end. The bad guy's always caught. It's a little strand of blonde hair that convicts him. I, you know, it's hope porn. Yeah, which is, which is again why like a lot of Indian stories are great because it just gives you the mess of life. It, it, nothing works out the way you thought. And there's some sliver of hope somewhere, but it's in this terrible shit of dead death and, and anxiety. And, and it, it's life in so many ways, right? Like the Mahabharata ends with all the, all the five brothers getting falling off the mountain, don't be falling off the mountain. And then like everyone going to hell. And then eventually you go to heaven to go back into the cycle again. You're like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> dog gets there before them. Oh yeah, the dog definitely does. <laughs> yes, that's the perpetual cycle of life, isn't it? And that's yeah. why it's showing, isn't it? The perpetual cycle that you could just restart again. Because I think so many people are lost with purpose. And I just think if you look at, you know, back, you know, the old times and now, what was people's purpose? Maybe they didn't think, but now we're so embedded, we all need a purpose. And then maybe these stories coming back will, you know, enlighten people and recalibrate people to the simple, beautiful pleasures of life. So, you know, it's weird we because as I've gotten older, um, there's a certain level of one little strand in my brain has kind of taken on this thing about you know, because I'm almost 60 and you, you know, you, you start to realize your mortality by a certain point mm -hmm. and you realize that, okay, um, there is one part of my brain that subconsciously keeps saying, okay, next life. I'll be need yeah. you over. You know, <laughs> I'll do that. That's right. Yeah, it's next time. And it's not a conscious thought. It's just sort of like, yeah, okay, you know, I'll do this bit today. What would your and... next life be, Seema? Oh God, I don't know, but I'd like to start earlier on this work if I can. So we believe <laughs> in our um, mythology that, you know, to become a storyteller, you have to get permission from Devi, from the goddess. Yeah. And um, if she grants you permission to become her storyteller, then you have to give yourself over for all eternity to storytelling. You cannot get a break. You can't be anything else. So what she does is, and one lifetime is not enough to learn all the stories. So you don't get to go to Yamraj. You don't get to go to the land of the dead because that's where they wipe your memory clean. So she turns you into a rat in between lifetimes and you live in her temple and then you come back again. So literally, I am for all eternity a storyteller, a rat, a storyteller, a rat, a storyteller, a rat. <laughs> you know, literally for all eternity, that is me. Until you get <laughs> Broke storyteller, rat, broke storyteller, rat, broke storyteller, rat. Yeah. But I'd like to start the storytelling a little sooner in my next life. Yeah. Well, you know, there's some children's books. You know, but isn't that part of the, the the awesomeness that is you that you started with so much experience before you got into this? All right. You come in with experience, so you already you have a, a different view on things than you would if you started earlier, right? I, I, I think you're absolutely right because a lot of the things that I started with when I, you know, when I first started studying, you realize by now how yeah. um, limited that vision was, and I thought I knew it all at that point. Yeah. But also the fact that you know at university we studied European and American literature to the extent that we did, you know, when you studied for years and years and years. Yeah. 
And the great thing about that is that now I can actually correlate the two. Yeah. So when I now talk to multicultural audiences, I know how to, I know how to make it contextual, which is really great. That's right. Especially you have to nowadays, right? It, it's it's you, you have to talk to as many different diverse groups as possible. Well, even if you talk to people in India, I mean, yeah. even for the Indians in India, if you know what you are talking about, your level of education, for instance, Mukunda, on this is it's huge. But most people don't have a. A percentage of that even so where do you begin That's you true. have to begin somewhere yeah so i knew i know where i began and and i just started learning sanskrit that's my problem and i realized that all the texts that were written are not even written in the sanskrit that i'm trying to learn now because that was a whole different you know medieval and ancient sanskrit is so different and literary sanskrit are, are you doing so classical are you doing classical is that what you learned no i'm just trying to learn basic <laughs> words just trying to get to uh. the so the okay. first bit, you know, this is the start for me. I I didn't study Sanskrit at school. Yeah. Um, barely studied Hindi because at the time I went to school and college at, in in India, uh, Hindi was like passe. You know, you didn't really. You had one subject a day, but Hindi and it, one period a day. But I do feel this is like so indicative of India, like in the sense of this is the only place I can think of where your native language is secondary to like English or culture of, of, of someone else, no, right? Not even secondary. So it was English, French, and then Hindi. Wow. Yeah, ah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, for me, it was like, and I, I truly, even till date, I hate admitting it, but I will say it in public on your podcast. You know, when I, when I read Hindi, my Hindi reading is so pathetic. And a lot of my books are in Hindi. So, and they're in ancient Hindi, so not even regular Hindi. And <laughs> I can go, ka, ka, ga, ga, and you know, at the end of this thing, no. the, you know, the, all these new, new, I don't even know, I don't know how to read those alphabets, the fifth <laughs> one in each line. I don't know how to pronounce them. They're all the, the whole bunch of new. Like a sha, you know, sha, like. Sha, sha. I can do sha and sha, but the shura, you know, the, like in the shringa. <laughs> Shringara. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and the nerves, the nyung, nyung, I, I, yeah. can, I don't know how to read them. So the other day, um, and then with Sanskrit, it's not even as simple as just knowing the word. It's where it's split. Yeah, the sandhi. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Because it's all the, in one line. And you're like, God, yeah. where do I break this? I don't know where to break. Because if you break <laughs> it in the wrong place, it turns into another entire word. <laughs> So um, my teacher, my Shastriji taught me this particular phrase the other day, which is Sambhog Arth Sharir Pratikram Prasadhanam, mm -hmm. which he was explaining to me in the context. So he said, you know, Pratikram, which means makeup, which means adornment. Yeah. And he says, Sharir Pratikram is where, you know, you've got sandalwood and perfume. So you'd adorn your body. So for the purposes of pleasure. Samboga. When you so for the purposes of pleasure when you adorn your body because pleasure is divine because pleasure is the path to god the preparation of your body is like preparing prasad yeah and it was so beautiful i was blown away and i've been reciting that line to myself so i don't forget it but you know it took me ages just to learn that yeah yeah it, it, and, you know it's but it's it's great that you're doing it i mean I, I, like you know i i, I 50 some years old learning Sanskrit. It's fantastic. You know, there's, it, it, you're, you, not many people can do that. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah. It's not many people can do that. So it's amazing that you're doing it. And I think it's, it's going to, it's going to enliven your reading of the text more because 
the power of saying a language, it's also changes, you know, oh, you can say it in English, but it, you say it in a certain way, it changes the feeling, the tenor, the everything, right? It does. It's that whole prosody angle, isn't it? It's like yeah. when you say it, it just, and, you know, there's a story that I tell, it's on my YouTube channel, it's called yeah. Nandini, where there is this courtesan, and she's a Vishkanya. Yeah. So she's, um, you know, so when she kisses somebody, like she's literally made of poison. And uh, and she falls in love with her teacher, who is a Sanskrit teacher. Huh. So it's a very, very unlikely, this thing. And he falls in love with her because she's gorgeous. But she goes to him at one point and she says, you know, I am a courtesan. Like, it, like I am the amazing most, I, I'm the most perfect courtesan. I know everything. The only thing I don't know is how to read and write Sanskrit. And the Kamshastras are written in Sanskrit. So I cannot even read about love in the language of love. How can yeah. I perform it properly? Yeah. And that line kind of stuck with me. And I thought, I talk about love, but without knowing the language of love, I need to know it. Wow. Wow. Oh. Wow. Language of love. Wait till you, I mean, you, you'll get there very soon. But wait, wait till you start re reading Gita Govinda. In Sanskrit. Oh, yeah. God. Well, this is it. I mean, the Geet going. So, okay, funnily enough, uh, Lee Siegel talks about Sanskrit as it, it's so the book is called Love in a Dead Language. Yeah. And he actually talks about Sanskrit. He says the best way to actually proclaim your love is in Sanskrit because now it's a dead language. That means that none of the words have any other connotations. They mean what they mean, what they mean. And that's it. The, the, the meanings have been carved into stone. Um, and so that I thought was an interesting idea that, you know, maybe yeah. it's like. But I mean, he's right in part and also wrong in part because of Panini Sanskrit change. You could create a word with anything. So the word can change. A word you use in the past can change, mean something now because of the way the root, the datu connects to, you build out the word. So the, that changes the language. But for, you're right, where literature stops, where Sanskrit literature stopped in maybe the 16th, 17th century, you know, it's been frozen since then, right? Really to be, I mean, there's some work still being done, but there's not real literature being done in Sanskrit, which which we can talk about, right? But it's, um, have you read Megaduta, by the way? Yes, well, not in Sanskrit. Obviously. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. 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 I find that to be lovely. But I think Kumar Sambhavam is, Oh, it's just divine. It's yeah. so beautiful. So beautiful. Jahada, you have to read Kumar Sambhavam. There's a, I'm just there's a translation. <laughs> Full of love. There's a translation by the Clay Sanskrit Library. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they actually do the best translations, I have to say, if anybody's um, reading um, stuff that they want to read in translation. The Clay Sanskrit, uh, the Clay Sanskrit Library, which is done by a lot of the um, Oxford academics, mm -hmm. It's beautifully done, but Kumar Samavam people, if you haven't read it, you need to read it. It oh. is utterly, oh, it's gorgeous. Give us a little snippet that you think that was really beautiful for you. Oh, okay. So um, for me, it's, you know, th there's this description of when Parvati goes to try and get Lord Shiva's attention. And so she tries everything. So she gets Kamdev, you know, the god of love and desire to come. And he brings spring with him. And then Lord Shiva gets really angry, opens up his third eye, and he incinerates Kamdev. And love and desire, beauty is dead. And she says, now what do I do? So she decides that she's going to get him through penance. So she goes off to meditate. And she sits there on this mountaintop. And she meditates. And they say that she sits over there. And the seasons pass. And finally, the rains come. And then it, desc it describes that first drop of rain. 
as it falls on top of her and it falls on her head and how it rolls down her forehead and then onto her cheek and down to over her lips and down to the edge of her chin and it lingers there just for a second and then it drops onto her chest and breaks into a million different I mean it's just oh my god it's just exquisite yeah it's so beautiful oh that's a beautiful ending that's just fabulous <laughs> yeah that's actually just at the beginning of the text though <laughs> yeah exactly that's just the beginning of the text <laughs> you know, then they get the whole section of how Rati laments. I mean, it's just, oh my, you know what? That whole text is just exquisite. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. And um, the last part of that, the, the very last section, the British decided that they would um, not include it because that's where Lord Shiva and Parvati make love. They, yeah. they consummate their marriage. And they decided that it was just too much for them. So they had to remove it. <laughs> but it's... Yeah, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of literature like that too, right? You know, obviously. So, what do you think, um, Simaji? That what can people do nowadays to really get in touch with that that element of the comma element of of the, the, what we've been talking about of of, of pl a pleasure of love of of desire and and all of that in this in this day and world in a healthy way. So my advice always is, I find that actually we've shut our minds off to it. I think karma is on the inside. You know, it, typically, like we were saying, our stories have so many layers of meaning. Yeah. And the very fact that Kamdev is incinerated right at the start of our mythology, um, you know, and then he's Ananga, he, he's bodiless, yeah. so that he exists inside the mind. And karma is inside us, but we have been fed this this philosophy of sin and guilt for so long that we have actually shut down that part of our brain that deals with pleasure. Yeah. Even on the inside of our brain, we won't think of it because we believe it to be wrong. And all I want everybody to do is just open up that one channel inside your brain. Just allow yourself to think about it. Don't do anything else. Just let that be the first step. Just think about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a... Because pleasure is not sex do not equate it with sex and do not equate it uh, with something bad and sinful just just think about it see yeah. what it does to you yeah because yeah, we've on pleasure haven't we on so many different levels the little stick fights and nature all around you we've forgotten what the beauty of pleasure is which is essence organic it's us and nature around us isn't it and that connectivity you have because of sting everyone thinks of tantrics and that connectivity and being one with two people and you've forgotten all the other aspects, isn't it? Well, I mean, like even with COVID right now, right? Like this should teach us the, the pleasure of just touching someone else, not even for like the pleasure of just going out and hugging someone, you know, yeah. you know and, and that's, you know, I, I, I mean, that's something I, I think like we've lost in some way and we're, you know, just the pleasure, it's it's more perfunctory nowadays where you just give a quick hug. There's no, we don't take the pleasure in the human contact that we've now lost in the past year and change, right? But I find also people are really, because I have this thing about, I will hug, you know, if I yeah. see somebody, I will put my, and I find a lot of people kind of, you know, shaking off a little bit and yeah. then they kind of get all like, oh, and 
and I like to hug hard, you know, it's like nice tight hug. And some yeah. of them, I wonder if they're just too fragile, you know, am I going to break their bones? Or... I will say one thing, this is revealing to me, the only, I'm weird this way, and I don't know why, but like, everyone else can hug me, but I always feel weird when my mom does it. I always get a little more apprehensive. Like I, 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 I close up a little, but like oh. when, when everyone else does it, I'm like, yo, 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 it's good. But like, my mom does it, like, I feel a little weird. I feel like a little boy again. Maybe that's why. Cause it's like your mother's around. And you always feel like a, your mother gives you a hug. You feel like a little boy. You don't feel like a man anymore. You feel like a little boy. <laughs> I tell you what, somebody told me this a while ago. Um, mom, I'm, I'm telling you because yeah. I'm now a really elderly mother moms really need hugs they need seriously big strong squishy hugs and somebody said to me they said you know at this stage in their life um even if you throw flowers on them it'll hurt them so it's Aww. like yeah i just thought that was very Aww. beautifully put so um yeah mummies need hugs that's Okay. All right. I, My I wretched I, sons don't hug properly. They need to be told. Yeah, that's, and then it's very that's quick. Like me too, and thankfully, right? I have a daughter that does it. But you know, yeah, I need more hugs. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the pleasure, isn't it, of human touch? And our nervous system is is designed for that purpose. And we're forgetting all this, and we're just doing screen time. I know we're doing this on Zoom, but we're but we're connecting. You know, we're in the UK. You're there in California, and you still connect because there is still that energy in it, and it's based on love that that, that associates and connects us all together. Yeah, this is pleasurable. This conversation is pleasurable, as we say. <laughs> Indeed, it is. <laughs> So, I mean, I mean, we have a little bit of time left, but I just want to just jump on a, a topic I think like will be very important in. So how would you juxtapose modern concepts of femininity or feminism with like older concepts or, you know, the concepts that you've been studying? Is it, what are the what are the benefits that modern uh, modernity or modern feminism brings to the past and what are the past brings to the modern world? What can we learn from each? So I find that we are actually now in, in today's day and age, we're literally just coming back to our feminist fight. I mean, it's very, very new when you think about it, when you think that we say that the first of it, the first of the um, feminist battles begins in America in the early 60s. And if you think about it, it's a very, very young battle still. And I think what happens in any battle that's just being fought, there's a, um, you know, there's this desire to get somewhere and there's a lot of anger. And that first bit of the battle is quite bloody because obviously, you know, if women are fighting for their rights, there is going to be a certain amount of pushback from the men. So anytime you try and change a story, somebody else is going to try and keep the story the same. And so it's a little bit bloody at the moment, but I think also there is no, um, how does one put it? There, there has, okay, I think a lot of people are coming forward and joining the battle, but I wish that there was some way of guiding people along this battle, because I think that's what a lot of us need. You know, when you... Uh, we're such a spectrum. I think that's the thing. Femininity is such a, a vast spectrum, like hyper femininity. How do you deal with that as well? Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's I, I, you know, the reason that I go back each time to the Kama Sutra and I talk about it. So this is the first text, literally, from mm. a time like um, 
you know, like we were saying, like Mukunda was mentioning the, the Shwetaketu incident that, you know, he says, okay, it's got to be done. So Indian society is not a particular way. There is also this particular, um, I think Bhabhrabhya says at one point, he quotes this king and his minister, where the minister says to the, the king says, I'm in love with this woman. And the minister says, sire, women are not to be loved. Women are like cooked rice. They're all the same. You use them and you discard them. And so, you know, Vatsyayan says, okay, we have to change this, um, this attitude. Now, I personally believe that, you know, like I was saying, the Kumar Sambhavam, Kamdev is incinerated. Rati, his wife, wants to kill herself. The gods say to her, you know, the world cannot exist without love and desire. So you carry on with his work. Go ahead and do his work. And at some point, we'll bring him back to life. So I think that the ancient Kama texts were written by women. I think that's our provenance, that it was actually created by women. Because if you read the Kama Sutra, the Kama Sutra was written to teach men how to live the perfect life in society. It was not written for women. Um, Book two is the only place, the book, okay, section two of the Kama Sutra is the only place where they talk about pleasure and foreplay and so on. That's the arts of love. The rest of the book doesn't talk about it. So this is the only place where we talk about women and their empowerment and their right to pleasure and their right to a certain platform and so on. It's the only place. And I think that it's just a really clever book because Mm. if you're in the corporate sector, you'll know that um, any kind of change has to be really tiny. It has to be incremental has to be really tiny and it has to be aspirational. So you have to make somebody believe that they want to do this. So the Kam Sutra has this thing about, um, you know, in the introduction, Vatsyan says, uh, Padma Shri uh, comments on it in, in the 10th century afterwards. And he says, so if you are ready to give your, your wife, your woman, whatever, full pleasure, your business will be better because she will not spend all your money pointlessly. She will make sure she looks after your household. She will not go out and, you know, da, da, da. If you um, pleasure her fully, if you bring her to full pleasure, you'll become a better warrior. Because, and they have actually some battle positions that are based on lovemaking positions. There are battle formations based <laughs> on lovemaking positions. And it says that, you know, if you can do the same thing every day, because basically the body is limited, you can only do so much of the body. If you can go back and do the same thing, but slightly differently, so you can bring the element of surprise into your lovemaking, that is a skill you can bring to the battlefield, so you become a better warrior. Anyway, so it goes on with literally, every, because if you think that for centuries, it's been about the man's pleasure, we're trying to suddenly change it and say, the woman's pleasure is very important. You have to give the men a reason to follow that. So it makes it aspirational and it's really incremental. It doesn't say you make the woman equal everywhere. You start with the, the bedroom because if you cannot give her that in the bedroom, you certainly aren't going to give it to her outside, you that, that level of respect and, and um, equality. So I think that they, by the time they wrote this text, it was very carefully considered and it was very mm-hmm. carefully written. It was thought about. I wish that we could have a similar kind of guidance today, which we don't have in our fight. Um, Maybe it'll come in time, I don't know. But 
right now there's a lot of you know also because there's this whole new thing about influencers okay mm-hmm. which is big money at the moment still and so if you want to be an influencer one of the things that's really trending at the moment is that you're a sex positivity influencer you go to a pr company they tell you what to say they give you a bunch of um, lines to write they give you things to say for a lot of them not everybody I'm talking yeah. about for a lot of them and you say all the stuff and a lot of people aren't really talking about the responsibility of sex positivity they're just talking about a lot so it actually makes me quite annoyed because you know everything there, there's two sides to everything and there has it has to come with a certain amount of responsibility and they've commodified love haven't they essentially they've commodified it. it's like a tick box exercise and that's what's sad. And I think like a guidance book would be so good. And it's so astute to work out because I always thought that must be a woman. And she's clever because she's got her way because the pleasure is on the woman, but she's marketed it to the men to make you feel amazing. And that is a good trait of a good woman, isn't it? To raise the profile of her husband. And you know, you can always tell a good wife, she'll be smiling and that's based what it is and that's that femininity isn't that that multi-dimensional role that we have and you get taught that maybe through generation observing men or observing aunties and coming down generations when you're talking about you know your amazing role models you had growing up and that's made you very observational as well but strong but observational and you can use your feminine charm when you need to use it, but you're still a very strong woman. So I think it's amazing and astute that that is, because I remember looking at the diagrams, the book, you think that's that's a woman <laughs> that's fought so much through there, isn't it? And you know, she's, she's used another name for it to speak, yeah. So I think that's really interesting that we can use our feminine charms and that's marketing, isn't it? Hundreds of years ago, used to market, yeah. isn't it? And, and to get the change you want, because politicians do it now, does to get our votes, isn't it? Yeah, that they would the target. Same. And again, it's, it's the so here it's the women, and we'll get we'll get our way, and we have to change society, and it's that little way. So it's 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 very clever, very well spotted so. as well. Yeah, but it took a long time to actually understand that to actually get to it, because you know. At no point does um, the Kama Sutra actually talk about the act of sex. It doesn't talk about sexual fluids. It it talks about positions, but from a whole different point. It doesn't talk about either the, it's a treatise anyway, so it doesn't talk about emotions. Um, It doesn't talk about how you're supposed to feel, but it doesn't talk about the act of sex. It doesn't talk about the thrusts, et cetera, as opposed to Chinese erotica that does, or Japanese erotica that, you know, talks about it at length. So I think that, you know, you finally come to an understanding where you're talking about a text where it says, well, if you're going to take 10 hours to bring a woman, 10 hours of foreplay to bring a woman to pleasure, it can only just be a woman saying it, quite honestly. <laughs> that's right. I, I I'm that's pretty, pretty sure that's right. 10 hours of work, that, that's not happening. <laughs> and the right to you, she was targeting men, so she probably thought, let's just take the emotion out of it. <laughs> just be wasted. <laughs> it's just it's just like you know because it constantly goes on it's at no point does it say okay and then you come you read chinese erotica you read the japanese you read the persian erotica and very much about ending with the with the act of sex but not this you know um but i think um yeah i think it's about the 
if I had to change one thing for the women, I think I'd like them to get rid of the internalized misogyny that we live with. You know, things that you just accept. Just things that, um, you know, stereotypes that we have all grown up with or ideas that we have all grown up with, which you just, you don't even question because you've just grown up with it. So changing your position by actually saying, no, actually, this is not okay. I remember years ago um, being made fun of because I always say that, you know, there's a lot of women who will say, oh, but I'm really lucky. You know, my husband always lets me do whatever I want. He doesn't stop me. And I'd be like, okay, no, it's not lets you, you do it and he supports you. It's a teensy little change in language, but I think it's a huge thing. And my daughter said to me some, uh, literally, I think two years ago, she had a boyfriend and she came home one day and she's, she's 23 now. So she was going out to this boy at this point. And she came home one day and she said, you know, when I was little, I used to say to you, you're so lucky dad lets you do this. Um, just, you know, the other moms at school can't. And you would say, it's not that dad lets me, I choose to do it and he supports me. And she said, I used to just keep quiet because I didn't know what you were going on about. But she said, I understood today in a conversation that we had what exactly you meant. And I was like, I'm glad you understood it. But of course, that first pushback is always difficult because you know a lot of people can't understand why you're pushing back on something so tiny. No, I, I, so I think it's different for, for women that way, right? So like, if, if I were to say, my girlfriend lets me do this, it means something different than when, I think because of the nature of a patriarchal institution, it means something different, right? So I think for, for women, it's, it's, yeah, I always tell, I always tell her, I, I'm not, you do whatever you want. I'll, I got your back, you know, just, you don't need to run it by me. If it affects us, we should talk about it. But if you want to do your thing, do your thing. You know, that's, uh, it, it should never be asking, I, I, though, actually, there, there should be one, the way I view the world is either both parties ask each other or both parties don't ask each other. There can't be an imbalance of, of, of power or dynamic here. That doesn't make sense. No, absolutely. Yeah, I was just going to say, a man will be considered under the thumb if he was say, yeah, my wife's let me do that. So there's a distinct difference. Yeah, that's it? true too, yeah. There is. And also, like I said, a lot of people probably don't say it with anything extra in mind. I mean, there yeah. isn't really an added thing, but it's just that word. So I know that I'm one of the people who are fighting this battle. So I will stick to that word. And I know I get told off like, oh my God, you started again. I got made fun of by somebody saying, oh, so you think you're going to change the, the position of women just by changing that one word? Okay, ha ha ha, let's see. But that is how it is. It is a fact. And it yeah. is a few people that will go out and fight it and you know but that's exactly right because you say to five people out of the five people one or two might listen and they change it's 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 a cascading effect right you know you yeah and it's literally the stories that you tell you know the stories that you tell define who you are the words that you use to tell those stories will define your actions right they will define your behavior those words are really important we have that lovely um the nila tantra um, there's the story of how the demons, um, you know, when the, all the gods have had their Amrit and yeah. they've won and yeah. they've won the heavens back and the demons have been chucked out and they're trying to figure out how do we now go back and fight them? Which is the extra power? Do we need more army? Do we need more battles? Uh, sorry, more weapons? Do we need more magic? And then two of the demons say, we need the Shabdrashi. We need all the words and sounds of the universe. We need to control all the words of the universe. And so then this whole thing starts about, you know, 
capturing all the words, twisting everything. It's all in the stories that you tell. That's awesome. That's, that's surveillance now, Seema. That's awesome. media. <laughs> all right, I think we've been going almost two hours. Do you have any- yeah. uh, okay. You have to do some editing. <laughs> closing last thoughts before uh, you know we let you go to your evening. <laughs> yeah, to my bed finally. Um, <laughs> no, I just hope that um, if you know whoever's listening in, that it's going to actually get you excited enough to go and visit some of the ancient literature and acquaint yourself with it, because I think that we have so much to offer in the way of entertainment in the way of philosophy in the way of almost everything that and it's also like connecting with an identity truly on the inside there is an Indianness to you that needs to be fed and it just is trust me um you know when you get there you'll know it <laughs> awesome <laughs> thank you so much for your time uh thank you. it's been Gina such a Jace. pleasure it's been a great pleasure Push Yeti vanamali madhuram kayati vanamali